Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Bob Hughes, VP of Biochemistry at BioAge. Joining us today is Professor Michael Snyder, Chair of Genetics at Stanford School of Medicine where his research group develops and uses technologies to study biological regulatory networks and applies these approaches to understand human variation in health. He's founded multiple biotech startups and has authored a book entitled Genomics and Personalized Medicine, What Everyone Needs to Know. Professor Snyder, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's so much to discuss. Let's just jump right in. There is a term called precision medicine. There's a term called personalized medicine. You're obviously at the forefront of many of these ideas. How would you describe precision medicine or personalized medicine from your perspective? Yeah, well, I guess what it is, is, you know, getting the right treatment for the right people at the right time. Believe it or not, we're actually much more focused, I would say, on precision health, trying to keep people healthy at an individualized level and trying to use big data to do just that. We're at a point in biological science where there's this sort of torrent of data, genomic, proteomic, metabolomic, etc. So how does an individual deal with that level of richness of data and potentially use that amount of information to inform their own personal healthcare choices. This has all come out in the last, say, 15 years, roughly or so, and one could argue even further, where you can now collect data at a level that's never been possible. We can sequence people's DNA. We can do deep profiling them, if you will, on all their molecular composition, so their RNA, using mass spectrometry. We can now follow the proteins and metabolites, the microbes. So all this is very new. And why is it so powerful? Well, it's powerful because I would argue before, we used to just take a few simple measurements on people, especially when people are healthy. You go to a physician's office, which you don't do very often when you're healthy, by the way. But when you did go, they maybe measure 15 things, some of which are you know, of questionable value. And we're in a world now where you can just collect so much deeper data on people. I like to liken it to a jigsaw puzzle. If I want to see what the picture is in a puzzle, looking at one or two pieces of a thousand person puzzle isn't going to tell me the picture. Even 15 pieces probably won't do it. But I want to look at as many pieces as possible. And that's what big data is all about. It's a matter of collecting as much information as possible, in our case, to look at your health. And so this is a project we started Roughly 11 and a half years ago, I was a guinea pig. I'd started on myself. I didn't know I'd be that interesting. Turns out everybody's interesting. And we've now been profiling a group of uh, roughly 109 people for eight and a half years. And what we're doing is we're collecting deep data on that. We'll sequence their DNA to predict genomic risk for disease. We'll 
do all these deep molecular measurements of RNA and proteins and metabolites and microbes, mostly out of their blood for their plasma to see their health, but also out of their immune cells. And then we'll also do it longitudinally. That's the other key aspect. One aspect is to collect deep data. The other is to do it over time so we can track people's personal trajectories. We're doing this on healthy people. So we want to transform what I call sick care into health care. That's the way medicine works these days. You mostly do sick care. And so we really want to track people while they're healthy. And you might say, why are we doing this? Well, we're trying to understand what it means to be healthy. How does that change over time? And that'll relate to the aging part we'll talk about. How does it differ between different people? And can these advanced technologies be better used to manage people's health? And the answer is just from the first three and a half years of the 109 people, half of them, 49, learned something pretty important about their health, meaning we call it someone's lymphoma, to be with precancers, to be with serious heart issues. And all this was pre-symptomatically. And, and it was no one technology that did it. Sometimes it was a genome, sometimes all these deep molecular measurements. We're doing a ton with wearables now. We'll probably talk about that, smartwatches and things. And that actually, believe it or not, picks up things as well. So all these different data types, they give you a much more complete picture of your health. So we can see how you're doing, how that's tracking. And it's turned out to be powerful. Like you say, half the people learn something important about their health just from the first three and a half years. And in some cases, we would argue it's life-saving. So that's really the essence of what we're doing. And now we're trying to roll, that's a research project. And so on the commercial side, I've been trying to roll it out to more people. And the way you do that isn't through academic labs. You start companies, as you would know. And so we've formed several companies that have spun off out of this work. One is QBio that actually does medical version of what I just told you, does whole body MRI. And same thing, they've caught all kinds of pretty important stuff. They even caught some of the early pancreatic cancer, which almost never happens. And that was picked up because of the longitudinal profiling. So again, these deep data profiles have been very, very powerful for following people's health, catching disease early. And in the case of genomics, we predicted some pretty important things, like we found some of the BRCA mutation, which puts them at very high risk for breast cancer. So my understanding is that you had sequenced or had sequenced your own genome and published it and put it in the public domain. And one of the things that you learned about your own genome was that you were high risk for type 2 diabetes. Can you describe a little bit about what it was like to just sort of see your genome and look at all that data and derive thoughts about how you might want to change your lifestyle? Well, in my case, what happened was I, as you say, I sequenced my genome. There were two things that caught my eye. One was a mutation in telomerase, which should have shorter telomeres and could be at risk for anemia. And it turns out I do have slightly shorter telomeres, although recently they're about the same length as my age group, expect from age group. But I don't have anemia. My mom has the same mutation or had it. She died at 91 so and never had anemia. So, so that one turned out not to pan out, which means not everything's there that is predicted. But the diabetes one popped up via something called a polygenic risk score that by summing over many loci, I told Butte's lab, looked at this and said, Mike, you're at the top end of the distribution on type 2 diabetes. And they said, oh, that's interesting. So I went to go get some tests that are related to something called insulin resistance, which is usually associated with type 2 diabetes. And while they were running that test, they discovered my plain old fasting glucose was high. 
And then it got even higher. It turns out it was right after I had a nasty viral infection. So what we think is that I was at risk for type 2 diabetes, and then this viral infection actually triggered it. I wound up hitting basically diabetic range values for fasting glucose and hemoglobin A1C. And I had to totally change my lifestyle to get it under control. So I cut out all exogenous sugar. I had been biking. I doubled my biking, started running. And gradually, it took about a year to bring it down the baseline. And so all was good for a while, but it popped back again later, ironically, when I stopped running and also got a second viral infection. So in my case, what we think is that I'm genetically predisposed. And then in conjunction with this viral infection, it's what triggered my type 2 diabetes, although I'm a strange type 2 diabetic. The bottom line is, though, that you know my genome did predict it, put me on the alert, and that's how I was able to flag this and at least initially got it managed. Later, it did pop back. I started running. I could never get it all the way down the baseline. I'm now on medication, which has turned out to be very useful. What sort of medication? Metformin or insulin? No, believe it or not, it turns out I'm metformin non-responder. So actually, I got it under control the second time a little bit. I got my hemoglobin A1C down to 5.7, which is kind of pre-diabetic. And it kept creeping up over time. I've been profiling me, as I say, for over 11 years. It just kept creeping up and up, and I switched from running to weightlifting because I heard muscle mass is better for glucose control, glucose homeostasis, and that failed. I just kept creeping up, but I kept up because it's been good for my posture and sarcopenia. So anyway, we kept that up, and then finally I bit the bullet and took metformin, and once you know it, I'm a non-responder. What we discovered is that I am insulin sensitive. I also make insulin just fine. So what's wrong with me? Well, I don't release it from the pancreas. And it turns out there's a drug for that. We learned this through more data, and the drug is called rapinolide, and that actually worked pretty well. Now I'm on something called an SGLT2 inhibitor, which is also pretty popular. It gives some cardiovascular protection. So, so that's actually been terrific for me. This is what we call precision diabetes. By better understanding what was wrong with me, we could get the right medicine to me and the right intervention. So again, this comes back to that precision word you use at the beginning, we're using, in this case, calling it precision diabetes, getting the right medication for me to control my type 2 diabetes. Well, you know, at BioAge, we're very interested in looking at blood proteomics and in longitudinal cohorts. It's not surprising that one of the most potent predictors of all-cause mortality is a rise in inflammatory cytokines. You know, this gets into the whole question of inflammation and the notion that late onset decline in function is due to a dysregulation or a kind of a hypermorphic phenotype with regards to the immune system. So I'm quite struck by your comments that suggest that you had this underlying predisposition to diabetes, but it was unmasked or brought to the fore by these viral infections. What do you think is going on there? Do you think that you have these sort of genetic variants and that inflammatory cytokines can just kind of bring them out? I mean, how do you think about inflammation in this context? Well, in my case, it's even more interesting than that. We actually looked at my, what's called DNA methylome. So this epigenetic mark, many of listeners may know, that can follow basically your marked DNA. 
And what we discovered is that we looked at this across these times when I turned diabetic. And it turns out there was alterations in my methylation in about 100 metabolic genes and promoters of those genes, so the, the gene regulatory regions. And so what we think is going on is actually, and it's all these genes involved in metabolism. And so what we think is that the viral infection led to altered methylation and altered gene expression on my metabolism genes. And it's not a huge shift. It's a little bit of shift. But when you do it over 100, it's over more than 100 genes, it probably is what buggered up my metabolism. What's also interesting about all this is that the COVID infections have now been associated. A lot of people who survive the COVID infections wind up type 2 diabetics, only a 4% increase, which is a pretty large number of people. And so we do think viral infections can cause these triggers. In my case, we think it's through methylation. Now, you're raising the issue about inflammation, and it's true that these inflammatory markers go up over time, and certainly type 2 diabetics have more inflammation and yes, your immune system definitely gets altered. And that's the number one underlying problem of many diseases. I'm sure you know that getting cancer your whole lifetime and your immune system's clearing it. And then when you're, in our case, we think when your immune system diversity drops, not so much inflammation, but immune diversity, some of these cancer cells escape and take off. And that's when you got trouble. But inflammation is certainly associated with aging big time. Inflammation or however you call it. I think, again, it all relates to that case, probably a hyper immune system, but maybe you're not then wiping out things you should be wiping out, cancer and stuff like that. You talk about the methylome and how the methylome can be informative. I'm sure you're aware of Stephen Horvath at UCLA and this idea of you know using DNA methylation as an aging clock. and being able to determine biological age versus chronologic age. And you have introduced a term called ageotype. So what are your thoughts on this notion that there is a biological age as opposed to a chronological age and whether it can be measured in a quantitatively meaningful fashion? I follow Steve's work pretty closely. I'm a big believer in it. It's certainly one of the best clocks, at least most use. And I think it's probably the best clock out there, but there are other clocks too. We talk about that. So I think it's quite fascinating. Some of the markers that get picked up when you look at these things are involved in inflammation or near immune genes, I should say. Some of the methylation markers are associated with his clock and some other epigenetic phenomenon out there as well that are associated with nutritional aging. But anyway, on our work, what was special about it, so I mentioned we had this group of 109 people we've been following over time, and we follow them very closely, right? We're sampling them every three months. So what we discovered is that we can see how people's profiles are generally pretty stable. They don't change that much over time, but there's about 600 markers we discovered that will shift over in aggregate. They will shift over time. And so what we've done is look at those that we think you need as few as five measurements in less than two years that we can see how people are aging. And what we discovered is by looking at people's profiles is that everybody's aging differently. So I'm a pretty typical ager. My coagulation pathways, metabolic pathways all go up with time. Although my immune system, interesting, is pretty good. That one's not changing too much. Another person we had, they're a cardio ager. Their top pathway is changing where they're 
dilated cardiomyopathy pathway. It was going up over time. And in the end, we said, well, let's take all these changes that are going on and see if we can group them. And what we discovered is that it's a small group of people we have right now. We could group people into four what we call ageotypes, aging patterns, if you will. And so we had kidney agers, liver agers, metabolic agers, and immune agers that we could all pick up. And I know they're more than that, like the cardio ager. We just didn't have enough people to be statistically empowered to call more than four. But I know there's going to be a dozen out there. Anyway, we can see how different people are aging. Some people are aging in all four of those categories, kidney, liver, metabolic, and immune. Some people in three of the four. Some people just be a single one, like a kidney ager. Other people be kidney and liver, this sort of thing. So everybody had different aging patterns. And so the way we think about this is like a car. Your car as a whole gets older over time, but some parts wear out first. And that's what we think is going on in people. So, you know, we're all getting older. You can see the signs in a lot of different ways. But some parts are probably having more problems sooner than others. And what was kind of cool is a cardio ager, for example, they turn out, we later learned, have stage two hypertension, which sort of fits with the cardiovascular disease idea. Yeah, so we made connections like that. It's kind of cool. And we think it's actionable information because when you see how people are aging, there's a lot of clinical markers associated with this, like creatinine and hemoglobin A1C, and you can track these markers and then you can try and mitigate this. So imagine you're a kidney ager. Maybe what you do is drink a little bit more water regularly. And if you're a liver ager, well, maybe you cut back a little bit on your alcohol. If you're a immunoager, maybe start getting some turmeric and some garlic uh, in you and that sort of thing. So of course, for all these things, exercise is a good thing too. So we think it's useful to see how people are aging and then be able that provide some level of actionable information that people should be able to use. And you hit a really important part. It's really important to have markers for aging. This is still a limitation in the field. Markers that operate in a time frame you can act on. And that is a big deal because you can't fix things if you can't follow them, if you can't measure them. And so having good biomarkers for aging, we think is a big deal. We at BioAge are very interested in, you know, using longitudinal cohort information as a predictive metric. So you have these 109 people that I'll assume that you think are representative of the general population. How did you recruit these 109 people and what were your inclusion and exclusion criteria for being part of this cohort? They are older. They do cover a variety of different ethnic groups that's similar to the U.S. population, maybe more South Asians, so say people from India, than is in a typical U.S. population, but otherwise pretty similar. But they are older. The median age is 53.4 when people entered the study. So there's a greater chance, you know, more things will go off. And that's maybe why we had so many health-related discoveries. And they're also a bit more overeducated, meaning more people with higher college degree. But it is still a pretty broad spectrum. Yeah, they're local folks from Palo Alto, right? Yeah, you have to be an <laughs> eager beaver. You got it. Uh, well, the Bay Area, they're not all in Palo Alto. But believe it or not, there is a spread in socioeconomic status. But they are, you know, they're more college graduates than in the average U.S. I think that part's true. Otherwise, what about men versus women? Because we know that women generally live longer than men. And we know from mouse studies that interventions, a lot of interventions that will increase the lifespan of male mice 
have no effect in females. So what do you think about the sex differences within your cohort? Our cohort is 50-50. We weren't empowered enough to be able to tease out because it was only 109 to the male aging markers and the female ones, at least not with enough statistical confidence. So as we add on more folks, we hope to do more of that, maybe learn better what's going on for those folks. What's the age type for men and women and how are they different? So we'll have to see, but a lot of the markers will be the same, but you're right. There are some differences and, you know, this has always been out there. Why do women live longer than men? And there's been lots of things suggested. One is they have better immune systems. And that may be the final answer. It's not clear, actually. Aren't females more susceptible to autoimmune disease than males? They are. So I think there's a difference between autoimmune and general immune health. I mean, yes, when you have autoimmune disease, that's not so good. And you're right. Women are definitely more susceptible. And that's a certain fraction of the population. But, you know, it's been argued that maybe, again, if you're more have a more robust immune system, you're going to clear fibrosis and cancer and things like that more robustly. And so it's possible that that's the case. I think the key is that we haven't looked at this. Maybe you guys have, like, what's the immune diversity in women versus men? I think you want a nice diverse immune system. It's pretty clear when you hit your, you may know this, when you hit your mid-60s, your thymus has shrunk to something pretty little and your immune diversity drops a lot. My understanding was that one of your very I think prescient discoveries was using autoimmune patients sera that were collected at Stanford to map, you know, going from sort of protein to gene with Lambda GT11. Sorry to get sort of jargony, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, you're going back a long way. Well, yeah, but, you know, you started out as a yeast guy, but you were working at the interface between yeast biology and human biology. And now you're fully entrenched. I suspect in human biology, there's probably no yeast people left in your lab, or maybe there are. But can you describe a little bit about what your evolution was? I know that you worked with Norm Davidson at Caltech, pretty serious sort of nucleic acid chemist. So you went from nucleic acid chemistry to yeast biology to autoimmunity. And now you're doing this really out there personalized medicine stuff. Can you describe a little bit about your evolution as a scientist and how you got from there to here? Believe it or not, there is logic to all this. So when I was a grad student, a postdoc, so I was a student with Norman Davidson, one of the best analytical minds I've ever seen. He's, he, I think he taught me a lot about trying to calculate things, figure stuff out for yourself really trying to understand things deeply. And then I went to Ron Davis's lab, who was probably one of the most creative persons I've ever met, still is, and uh, learned, I think, a little bit how to think outside the box. And then when I went to Yale, I was still hung up on the what was the paradigm at the time. You study genes one at a time, and it was pretty typical to do one gene, one PhD, you know, isolate a gene, characterize it, write up your thesis, and move on. And a big lab might study three genes or something like that. But everything was very focused. And, and I think our claim to fame, it did start with the autoantibodies. We were using autoantibodies to clone genes. That You're right, the first ones were from Stanford. And then later, we got a whole bunch from Yale. And the goal there was to try and find a lot of genes involved in the process. 
And then we came up with the idea that we should, instead of just studying these things one at a time, why don't we get all the genes involved in the process at once? And so we came up with a scheme, for, this was before DNA microarrays, of tagging all the yeast genes. So yeast was perfect for this because it only had 6,000 genes, and you can manipulate its genome, which was not so easy to do for other organisms at the time. In fact, probably none initially. And so what we did is we came up with this idea, let's just tag all yeast genes. We can actually localize where the proteins go. We can knock them out, and we can do all kinds of interesting things with follow their expression, when are they express, you know, during regular growth, during meiosis, during times like that. So we came up with this scheme of tagging all 6,000 genes and following for gene expression, protein localization, knockouts. So that was the first time people really went in and said, let's study all these things at once. And it goes back to the puzzle. Instead of studying that puzzle one piece at a time, let's tag them all the pieces and follow them all at once and follow. And that time, the cell biology processes we were studying were chromosome segregation and cell polarity, how the cells know where to grow. And it worked really, really well. We got all these very cool genes and proteins that we followed and studied. And so that was really the invention, in my opinion, of systems biology, functional genomics, you could also call it, following things again at the systems level. And so we plod along and did a lot there. And along the way, kept inventing new technologies that let us do all kinds of broad-scale analyses and studies. So we invented protein microarrays for following all the proteins at once, biochemical activities. We invented a procedure called CHIP-CHIP, which later morphed to CHIP-Seq, that you could follow all the binding sites of transcription factors, uh, these regulators I mentioned earlier. RNA-Seq was another thing that our lab invented by mapping all the transcripts, which let you find the genes as well, follow the transcripts. So quite a few different things over the years we invented. And then we always wanted to apply it to medicine, and we tried a little bit. It was always a little tricky because we weren't in a medical school, and it just made the collaborations a lot harder. So one of the attractions for moving to Stanford in 2009 was being able to really apply everything we were inventing and doing to try to transform human health, if you will, apply it to medicine, but more importantly, health. I think the thing that really hit me over the head, we talked about this, but never implemented, was when, you know, you go to a new place like Stanford, you enroll in a new health plan, and the first thing they do is they measure you, you know, and they give you back a report on these 15 things. And I'm like, my goodness, shouldn't we be doing a heck of a lot better here? Why are we measuring 15 things when we should be measuring thousands? And so that's really what launched the project I told you about. We call it the IPOP project, where we profile people very, very deeply. And we started on me simply because I was accessible. These people, you have to give a lot of blood to do this. So you have to be pretty dedicated. But you get a lot in return. You get a lot of information back. Some of it's clinical and then some of it's very research data. But it's been quite powerful. And it's been very eye-opening about the power of using all these new technologies. And it freaked all my MD friends out. You know, the idea you'd sequence healthy people's genomes. It was a terrible concept to them that you would make all these hyperchondriacs and profiling people so deeply, same problem. Oh, you're going to find all these things that make people hyperchondriacs. And the answer is, of course, that's not the case. People are pretty good about taking things in stride. You know, if you have a BRCA mutation, people want to know that. And then they get checked more frequently. If you're a woman, you might do what Angelina Jolie did, had her breasts and ovaries removed after she was past childbearing years. So you, this is valuable information that keeps people healthier longer. So I think it's pretty important. The idea that this 
incredible torrent of information could be actionable for, say, the average person. I'm a little bit more skeptical of that in terms of people using that level of information to make informed healthcare choices. Yeah, Bob, uh, member 49 out of 109 learned something important for their health. And I'll give you some examples of other gigs. Uh, that came out of the study. From the first 70 people, we had 17 that learned something from their genome that was useful. Now, it might be a touch high, but it's still, you're right, any one thing was low. One was BRCA, but we had two people with um, SHTB mutations, which puts them at high risk for cancer. One did a follow-up, a fairly young woman, did a follow-up whole body MRI. Once you know it, she had early thyroid cancer and she could get it removed. Again, pre-symptomatically, got it removed, so I was with thyroid, everything's good. There's another guy, also pretty young, who actually had a mutation in a cardiomyopathy gene. And it turns out his father had a heart attack actually around the same time we sequenced his genome and died in his 60s. And his aunt had one in her 50s. And we saw this mutation and then he did a follow-up stress echo. And once you know, he has a heart defect and he's on drugs now. We would argue that's a big deal. And then there was another nine individuals who were thought to be diabetic immune studies. So we didn't exclude diabetics. And one of them turned out to be a MODI mutation. They weren't a typical type 2. They were a different kind of diabetic. And the medicine used for a MODI person is typically different from that of a regular type 2. And so they've switched and are a more optimal medication. So we actually learned quite a bit. I mentioned the early lymphoma. So I'll send you the paper. You can see what you think. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, (laughs) I love chatting about all this stuff. But given our mission... Let's bring it a little bit back to aging and geroscience, if you will. Everything that you know about genetics and technology, how do you think that you can bring that to bear on questions of longevity? There's this idea of compression and morbidity. You want people to have the greatest health span and presumably die in some sort of traumatic (laughs) event when they reach their natural lifespan. You know, what do you think about lifespan and health span? Do you think that there is actually a wall that you hit at 100 or 110? You know, in dogs, it's 15 or something. So all of your thinking about big data, you know, what does it make you think about longevity and lifespan? You're hitting things I don't have all the answers to, but minimally what we're doing, I hope, will help keep people healthy the way you describe. Hopefully, they'll live long, healthy lives, and then bam, something happens and they pass away instantly. So they're not hanging on for the last several years in poor, non-functional situations. So that would be my ideal world, and we'd push that out pretty far. What is debatable? What is the upper lifespan of people. And I'm a believer that with the right therapies, we will actually get people living very, very long, hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Okay. Yeah. You're one of those. Yeah. Well, I am a little worried it may happen after me. (laughs) Um, So I better get busy. I probably should be working harder on aging than I am. We're mostly on just health in general. But some of those popular theories are that you obviously keep your immune system up. The people are working on that a lot. You may know, by the way, there's a ton of investment going on into longevity with these days, billions of dollars now into these new startups. 
I think the question out there, though, is whether the key is to get rid of your, you know, the synalytics, get rid of your senescent cells. Will that be? That's an interesting angle. I'm somewhat receptive to it. I think, you know, the thing that's looking most consistent these days is this parabiosis stuff where transforming factors, that's reproducing itself in a lot of different ways. Now, we don't know what those factors are. It's probably multiple factors. But I think that's a very interesting angle, but it's still very ill-defined. And so I think we will get it defined, though. I'm a believer in this stuff. The notion that there's this kind of wall that you hit this maximum lifespan, and it's different for different animals. And for humans, the wall is considered 110, shall we say. Why do you think that there is this wall that you run up against? What is it about these numbers, these ages, that seem to have this kind of absolute value, if you will, in terms of longevity? I don't have the answer, but I like the idea that your immune system, it starts plummeting in your 60s, like I say, and that just leaves you more and more vulnerable anytime after that. And you look at people get cancer, right, later in life. And so obviously, that's going to take a toll on a lot of people and more and more people will drop out. I mean, the two leading killers, as you know, they're cardiovascular disease and it's cancer, cardiovascular disease, number one. So you got to keep people's heart up and strong. I think having a robust immune system is good for that. I don't know enough about the senescence field. I don't think anyone does to know how that will play out as possible therapies and how that relates to parabiosis and things. So there's a lot of dots that have not been connected in this whole area. But I think that's the power of all the investments, right? That should help us understand this better and maybe come up with solutions. People talk about these hallmarks of aging, and they've published reviews in high-profile journals like Cell and whatnot, and they say that genome maintenance, antioxidant defense, mitochondrial energy, stem cell exhaustion, for organ and tissue repair, proteostasis. There's this whole sort of constellation of things that seem to go bad with aging. So do you think that there are sort of key central pathways that can be tweaked to fix all these things? I do. Now, whether they get you past 110, I don't know, but maybe they help get you out to 110. So I think a lot of the nutrient effects do seem to be pretty real. Like you mentioned mTOR. And I think some of that does relate to the antioxidants and things like that, that are just generally damaging. And it's clear your mitochondria, right? They do throw off. You get these heteroplasmies, you get these changes in your mitochondrial DNA. And once you get a mutation, they can take over if you start deleting things. And then the key is, can you start rejuvenating some of this? And you know, the question is, how many of these systems do you have to fix at once, which is the key system, or do you have to fix a lot of them? Certainly, most people will hope that there's a drug, an antioxidant, or something that will give all these things you just mentioned the boost, maybe even help with the DNA damage side. I don't know for sure, and I think that's why we need a lot more research in this area. I like to end these interviews with a kind of a blue sky proposition. You know, you're the chair of genetics at Stanford. It's obviously a high-profile position. 
So when you speak, people listen. You know, what do you have to say about human health and longevity from your bully pulpit? <laughs> well, I want to transform healthcare, period, in general. So we want to, as I say, I'm a believer, and we were saying this even before the pandemic. You know, healthcare is one of the few areas where people go to a doctor when they're we're healthy. If nobody shops by going to stores anymore, right? You get it all by Amazon. And that's how healthcare will move too. So we need more frequent measurements of people. We need it more convenient, way more convenient. We need to make a lot more kinds of measurements. I think we can transform healthcare. I think you'll see big change in the next 10 years in terms of home testing, all this sort of stuff. As far as relates to longevity, I'm a believer. I don't know if I'll be able to control my longevity, but I'm sure I would imagine most people who are in their 20s today will live to be at least 100. I would hope so. And possibly a lot longer. I hope that there'll be strategies out there. I'm a believer people will come up with strategies to have people live for hundreds of years that will create other issues. You obviously have to keep your mental health up too. It's not good enough just keeping your physical health. (laughs) Yeah. Some of that may be blood-brain barrier or things to keep your mental acuity. I don't know. So there's a lot to learn, but I think there's, like you say, it's blue sky. We can see what's out there. And I tend to be an optimist by nature. So you can probably tell. You know, we're all constrained by funding at the very least. So let's just say that we could have the Mike Snyder Institute of Health and Longevity, and you had unlimited funding to just do whatever you wanted. What would the first thing be that you would do? in such a place? First thing, I think if I wanted to do translational longevity, (laughs) getting people to live longer, first of all, I wouldn't do too much on model organisms. I think they've been fine for learning some basics, but in the end, they don't translate that well to humans. So I would be very focused on boosting. I mean, if there's one thing I could do, it would probably be boost the immune system. You heard me rail on that quite a bit. I think that will push people's health span out quite a bit. So that'd be my number one thing. And there's some interesting strategies out there for doing that sort of thing. What would number two be? Yeah, I mean, I think I would definitely be focusing on a lot of these things, uh, truly the effect of antioxidants, trying to understand what's in that plasma that's actually making old people young. That would be a biggie because I don't have the answers. I put multiple irons in the fire. And I do think the difference between now and even two years ago is people are really investing heavily. You've got a pretty wealthy older population, so very wealthy old people who are now recognizing their mortality. And they're starting to put large, large sums of money. You may know this Altos Institute is going to form. It's just going to be, you know, it's nothing like that. That's a lot of money they're going to put in there. And Calico, obviously, is oriented this way. So they may wind up being very fundamental. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. We'll learn a lot. But if I really wanted to solve the aging problem, I would be doing stuff in startups because I think they have their eye on the ball, really trying to, well, make people live longer. Thanks, Mike, for visiting with us and being generous with your thoughts. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, 
You can contact us by email at podcast at biowagelabs.com, on Twitter at biowagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.